1: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, by now you've probably seen them, the signs, large, small, colorful, or simply black and white, with the words Black Lives Matter. They've become a familiar sight since the wave of Black Lives Matter street protests after George Floyd was murdered by a now former Minneapolis police officer. Since then, Americans, some who never protested before, have signaled their support for anti-racism efforts by displaying Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns, in-store windows and as banners on churches and community buildings. But there's also been an angry response to the displays, with many incidents of stolen or vandalized Black Lives Matter yard signs and banners often accompanied with sinister messages. What has inspired white people particularly to post Black Lives Matter signs on their property in the first place? And how have some of these local residents responded to the vandalism? Later in the show, long before there was a movement to protect the American wilderness, there was an American president who fell in love with the beauty of
2: wide open spaces. I call it the environmental equivalent of the Gettysburg Address. It's Roosevelt standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon during a massive campaign tour. And he's standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, which he's never seen until that morning. He'd gone up and snuck a peak that morning and seen the great purple bruise of the canyon. And he came back and he delivered this speech where he basically said, leave it as it is, do nothing to mar it, don't build hotels on it, don't build houses, keep it for your children's children. Author David Gessner chronicles President Teddy
1: Roosevelt's determination to leave a legacy of public lands in his new book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Emma Hollander, Managing Partner of Trina's Starlight Lounge in Somerville. Welcome, Emma. Thank you. Andrea Markarian-Jones, World Language Teacher at Malden Public Schools. Hi, Andrea.
3: Hi, thank you for
1: inviting me. And Melanie Brown, Software Developer and Member of the Arlington Human Rights Commission. Hello, Melanie. Hi, Callie. All right, I'm going to start with you, Andrea. What made you decide to display a Black Lives Matter sign?
3: Great question. I live in a predominantly white town, north of Boston, and um, I really wanted to show allyship. And also that I'm not afraid to be open about my beliefs that are unfortunately debated for some reason. And um, I just wanted to show that humanity should, should not be up for a debate. So I, I wasn't afraid to, to show them.
1: So as a white woman, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and why you thought it was important beyond what you just said about wanting to show it was important, but, you know, you didn't have to as a white woman. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not, right. nobody well, had to, but you know what I mean. Right. I have that
3: privilege. <laughs> I don't have to. I do have Black family that live in this home. Um, my son is, is Black. My stepson is Black. And my husband is. But I don't think people knew that until... Um, things started to go down with with the signs and it started to go out onto social media and stuff but i really want people to know that i'm i'm a house we are a house where we feel where people should feel comfortable to come for any reason So back
1: when it first happened, uh, Boston 25 news spoke to some of your neighbors when your property was first vandalized. Let's take a listen. But one slice of silver lining now greeting them at
4: their front door, an outpouring of support from strangers.
1: What can we do to make
4: To brighten her day in a way because this was just so awful. So we're all connecting with each other in a new way. Sarah Teague, who lives a half mile away, has surveillance footage of her Black Lives Matter sign being stolen or vandalized seven times in recent months.
1: They went the extra step of vandalizing their property, which is just wrong, and it kind of just was the last straw for us. So that's people from from your neighborhood, Andrea. Uh, Emma Hollander, you're in uh, Somerville. Some people call it Camberville because it's right on the line between Cambridge and Somerville. And in the business that you manage, the Starlight Lounge, your sign was in the window, and yet you also got vandalized. Uh, Tell me about it.
4: Yeah, so... You know we are a group of white people that actually haven't jumped on the black lives matter bandwagon this year um we've had a black lives matter sign in our window as well as held fundraisers for black lives matter um throughout probably about the past five six seven years since the movement really started um this has been something that's meant a lot to us not only um As a business and organization, but as everybody that works there, you know, we're, we're owned, the three of us that own the business are white, but we employ um, so many different people on the, you know, throughout immigrants, people of color, black people, LGBTQIA plus, and a lot of women. So this is this was really important for us to stand up and um, make sure that the community knew that, that we were supporting them and that you know, we are allies. And we got vandalized twice within a month for our Black Lives Matter sign in our window, including somebody smashing our window and then spray painting our entire building.
1: So were you surprised uh, the Starlight Lounge for people who don't know it's quite a popular restaurant, neighborhoody, but also draws people from, you know, other areas? I would never have thought um as a black woman to think that that would be happening in your place.
4: Yeah. You know, it's it was a little bit of a wake-up call for us. I think that everybody in the greater Boston area feels like we're in this liberal city and, you know, police brutality and racism just doesn't exist here. And I don't think that's true. I think that Boston um, has a really good way of being undercoverly racist, but I think it's a good wake-up call for everybody in the neighborhood that racism is still alive. And, you know, as, as frustrating as it was for us to have to replace a window and have have to clean up our building. It's nothing compared to what Black Americans are going through right now. So for us, it it was unfortunate, but it really made us reevaluate what we're doing and making sure that everything that we're doing is, you know, we're putting our Black Lives Matter sign right back up and we're not letting anybody intimidate us into not speaking about um, what's right in this country right now.
1: So, like uh, Andrea, did you hear from neighbors, other people saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe um, we're supporting you"? Did you did you yes. hear, get that the, kind of response? Uh, the
4: outpour mm-hmm. of support was overwhelming. There, we we didn't have any backlash in any kind of way. There was nobody came to us and said, "You know, we really don't think you should have a Black Lives Matter." I mean, our our neighbors and community have been overwhelmingly supportive of everything that we've ever done.
1: Okay. Melanie Brown, you're with the Arlington Human Rights Commission. Um, you took over as head in uh, November 2019, um, and you have a, a history by your other work. This is a volunteer position of working on diversity issues and inclusion. And um, presumably, you're familiar as a black woman. You're familiar with racism. So yes.
4: Um,
1: so so, what did you think when in? August, uh, Arlington had a series of really ugly vandalism incidents having to do with Black Lives Matter signs.
0: Yes. So in August, we had uh, the Black Student Union from the Arlington High School did their own Black Lives Matter event in town center. And it was very well supported. And people felt very positively about it. And as a result of that, the end of their their uh, protests that they held, they hung two Black Lives Matter banners at the Arlington High School and those banners were vandalized. That was the first incident. Then other incidents started cropping up around town and we had a banner at a, a grammar school was stolen. Two churches had their hand-painted signs damaged and we've had over a dozen reported theft or vandalism events in people's homes as well. And it was a shock to the community to, to have so many occur over the last several months. And we're still tracking them. We track every single event that, that people report to us. And there are other events that we know haven't been reported to us. So I, I think people would be surprised to know how many there have been.
1: So now, how long have they been up before this happened in August? I, I had a sense that they've been up a while. And so it was kind of a double shock because... Nobody had said anything, and then all of a sudden, um, there's this rash of incidents.
0: Yeah, so um, individual homeowners had had their BLM uh, lawn signs up probably, I mean, some have been up for, for years, honestly. Others had gone up in the wake of, of the events surrounding George Floyd and, and others that have recently dominated the news. And with each new news cycle, more signs go up around town. So yeah, some of these have been up for a really long time. Um, The high school banner had probably been up for maybe a month, maybe a month when uh, it was vandalized.
1: Do you have any sense or um, I don't know if there's an investigation of if it's, you know, certain just one certain group of people or person or just it seemed like a silent coalition of people deciding to attack these signs. What's your sense?
0: So, some of this I can't really go into because the, there's still open cases. Okay. but I do know that the investigators they they did through publicly released information the the police have been investigating as many of these incidents as they can, you know looking for people canvassing the neighborhoods, looking to see anyone who might have had uh, you know uh, external cameras uh, or or um, you know doorbells with video systems in them, and gathering information. From what we're seeing, we actually have a tracking map where the HRC, the Human Rights Commission, is keeping track of all the events. And they are scattered throughout the town. So they're not limited to one particular area. They they do appear to be up and down the town in some of the more heavily populated areas, certainly. But um, they're from, from the Heights all the way down to East Arlington and up and down Mass Ave. Hmm. I don't believe that anyone thinks it's an individual. There are some patterns that have shown, in terms of the type of vandalism, or whether they were just straight stolen. So we one of one of the types of vandalism that we've had is someone taking um, KKK stickers and placing them over uh, lawn signs, and those have been limited to a specific neighborhood. Got it. But the others, they're you know, they're really everywhere.
1: Just just random you're not random, but you know somewhat but the KKK stickers appear
0: to be somewhat targeted if, if I'm understanding you. They appear to be in a neighborhood um, suggesting that they are acts of opportunity as opposed to targeted at certain individuals. They are you know BLM's lawn signs that are being targeted, but they do appear to be acts of opportunity the The larger events that happened in town did have an interesting pattern where they seem to happen uh, in the small hours of a Sunday night. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the
1: Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Emma Hollander of Trina's Starlight Lounge, Andrea Markarian-Jones of Malden Public Schools, and Melanie Brown of the Arlington Human Rights Commission. We're discussing how everyday people are experiencing vandalisms on their Black Lives Matter signs and posters. I'm going back to you, Andrea, to ask, did this feel very personal to you? You have, um, as you said, Black people in your family. And prior to this, it sounds to me like you... They had not been met with um, the kind of well whatever people were trying to get across to you by vandalizing your your black lives matter signs so so tell me what what that what the personal feeling has been for you
3: Yes, we were targeted um six or seven times, and the first incident was our sign being stolen, so i didn't really think much of that. We live on a really busy street, very visible when They started to vandalize. They were spray painting our driveway. The next night they spray painted a tree. And then they were throwing eggs and tomatoes and other various produce. That's when I started to realize or feel like it was personal. I didn't know if someone had seen, you know, my husband or my children on the front porch. Or It it did start to feel personal. Had they experienced anything? No, no. (laughs) They really hadn't.
1: So that's just sort of, it's very bizarre then. Yeah.
3: Well, it's it's came it's come down to it was um, they did find out who did it. It was pretty uh, much the same, the same. Um, it was a duo, a father son duo, people that don't live too far away from us. And they've been caught. And so it was, it was one it was one duo of people that that were doing this to us.
1: Did they say why? Did, were, did they get some? I mean, we can guess, but I'd be interested to know what they had to say.
3: Well, let's put it this way. Uh, we had a rally back after the George Floyd um, death back in June. We had our probably our first ever Black Lives Matter rally in my town, which was huge because we are a predominantly white town, and um, you know things like this don't aren't really unfortunately uh, people aren't affected, one might say. So as soon as this rally happened back in June, the next day, there was spray painting. There was vandalism down at a a pond right down the street from us, and we did link. The spray paint um, basically said explicitives, and they were very unhappy that the police department was in support of the Black Lives Matter rally. So Mm -hmm. I think it was more of a, oh my goodness, how can this town be supportive of whatever their reasoning, supportive of something that I don't believe in. And we're linking them to that.
1: Well, I think um, as we as we talk about the kind of vandalism that has been particularly targeted for people who have signs in their yards, um, I wonder, which I'll get your response to, is it because that those rallies like the one you had in your town of Linfield and the ones that have been everywhere across the country in very small towns um, where there's barely any persons of color and in you know, large urban settings as well, that there has felt like a coming together ship. I think, Emma, you said allyship. But there has been a uh, quite a multicultural crowd. I just want you all to take a listen to this is a former Boston City Councilor Tito Jackson. He was leading chants during the Black Lives Matter protest out of Franklin Park in Dorchester back in June. Black lives matter!
4: Black lives matter! Black
2: lives matter! We came to I got my Latinx people in the house, right, ladies and gentlemen? I have my white people in the house. Y'all here, too? Yes. Yes. My Asian brothers and sisters represented here. And we are all together as a community saying that black lives matter in Boston, black lives matter in the United States of America. They're going to matter in Massachusetts, and we are going to stand together.
1: So my question to you, Emma, is um, as you think back to You know, the vandalism that happened at the at the Starlight Lounge, Um, if there is a feeling of threat, you mentioned that um, you felt like there was a wake up call for you and the uh, the people in your neighborhood. But I wonder if there was also a feeling of threat about what appears to be allyship in these rallies and um, in the Black Lives Matter uh, sponsored protests. 100%.
4: I mean, I, I think that's what activism is, though. And I, you know, we say all the time, and even during this pandemic, we've been saying that, you know, often, the right thing to do is the hard thing to do. And it's not easy to be a real ally. And But part of allyship is, you know, what's really not easy is being a Black American. So I I think that, yes, we all felt threatened. We We all felt like it was a personal attack. You know, anytime somebody vandalizes something that you care about, whether it's the library, you know, for me, my business is my home. So that it could have well been where I, you know, my actual apartment building that it could have been the same thing. Um, I probably care more about my business than I do about my apartment. But yeah, it's a threat towards all of us. And you know, that's, that's literally what no justice, no peace is, is that, you know, until there's justice that none of us can be quiet. And we have to keep doing the hard thing, which is It's the right thing, you know, and till black lives actually matter in this country, then white allies can't do anything but continuously be allies and, you know, continue to do activism and continue to make sure that our communities are taken care of and the people in our communities, whether, you know, there's not a large amount of black people in your community, it doesn't matter. You know, we're talking about the whole country at this point, because Black lives, it's not like there's a, there's a state in this country where Black lives actually matter. We've proven that. Um, And I think that Boston and Massachusetts is a perfect example of a liberal, you know, everybody in Cambridge Somerville goes to the protest. Everybody has a Black Lives Matter mask on, a Black Lives Matter shirt. There's, there, you know, there's banners and signs everywhere, but there's clearly still plenty of racist people in our community. And we need to make sure that we're eliminating that the best we can.
1: So something that um, I've noticed and perhaps you all who've been personally affected and then, Melanie, it's part of your job to notice is that this happened also in the modern civil rights movement. So, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be a surprise, um, but it's a little bit shocking in that the white people who stand out are really make people mad um, who are mad about it. They are really mad at you all. They don't like it. Um, I mean, it's clear they're already mad at the black people, but for the white people who stand up, I mean, it's intense. And I wanted to refer you, uh, you, maybe you heard this story. This was a guy who was interested in what would happen if he did a little experiment to see if he, as a white guy, held up a Black Lives Matter sign um, and what kind of response he would get. This is Rob Bliss. He held the Black Lives Matter sign for three days in Harrison, Arkansas, back in July. And let's take a listen to the response he got. Explain
4: to me why I couldn't fly past. Hey, all lives matter, not just black. No. You're a Caucasian. Yeah, you're white. I've yeah, you're a white boy. that
2: stupid sign. You're
3: white, you Yeah, black year. lives do matter, but what about ours, man? Uh, apparently,
4: black people's lives matter more than us. Apparently.
1: So, when you hear that, Andrea, um, does it shock you a little bit? I mean, there—he did it because he was curious to know what would happen um, if people would say to his face what he thought they might. I mean, it's—it's it's pretty intense. It gets rougher than that, by the way. This we've—we've we've edited.
3: Yeah, it, it's almost like we have this. There's that unwritten word there that says Black Lives Matter only. Like, we doesn't say that. <laughs> we're we're saying Black Lives Matter too. <laughs> also, not more. And that was in Arkansas. But I, I've had conversations with people that really, truly don't don't get that. They don't they don't get that we're not saying it's an either or.
1: Um, did the intensity shock you, Emma? Uh,
4: no, <laughs> unfortunately, it didn't. I mean, I, I've come from a long line of um, civil rights activists, and I, I grew up marching with my parents um, since I was in diapers. So unfortunately, that didn't surprise me. This isn't, I, I feel like for a lot of white people, the Black Lives Matter movement, because it's as big as it is this year, and I'm very thankful for it. And I've seen even close friends really become part of this movement that hadn't been part of it before. But I. For a lot of the rest of us, I've been doing this my whole life. And in terms of when the Black Lives Matter, in quotes, actually started, you know, we were myself as well as my organization have been part of this movement for so long that uh, I think a lot of white people have woken up this year, and I'm I'm thankful for that. But this has been going on much longer than George Floyd.
1: Um, and I should mention that, in fact, the official start of Black Lives Matter was right after the Trayvon Martin um, trial when um, George Zimmerman was acquitted, and that's when the the phrase came into being and the movement started. And then it sort of got another, It's been going the whole time, doing other things uh, in local communities. we got another national presence after George Floyd's murder uh, when he died at the hands of the former Minneapolis police officer who kept his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Now, Melanie, taking the long view, as you must, at, at the Arlington Human Rights Commission, does it surprise you of the intensity of resentment and anger toward the white people? particularly in the, who have decided to become allies?
0: Absolutely not. I mean, the, the key thing about this, and, and, and we've seen this not just with, you know, the activity around the signs, but you know, Arlington residents have been protesting on the streets every single day uh, since George Floyd. And the amount of hatred that they've had directed towards them on the streets ha- has su- surprised a number of them. It sadly did not surprise me, you know, at having my own experiences, you know, being a black woman and being a black woman in a town that's, you know, as really, you know, as white as as the suburbs tend to be. I was not surprised by the reactions that, that folks received, um, sadly not surprised by the reactions folks received, because now you're talking about this, this is the privileged class who's making themselves visible, which means that there is a more more weight behind their presence. Um, and so for those people who had long felt that, you know, none of this was relevant and shouldn't be brought up, shouldn't be talked about or anything in a, in a public way. Now, w- when it's just black people who are protesting, it's easy for them to dismiss it. But when it's their neighbor who lives across the street, who's standing out there on a sign saying, you know, holding up a sign that says defund, it, it gets to them in a way that seeing Black people protesting in, you know, in the streets of Boston doesn't. So Melanie, looking
1: forward, all of you actually not only put the signs out and then put them back and, and, and took a stand in that way, but you, you're all doing things to make an impact beyond just the vandalism. So in Arlington, you all have started a series of conversations. And what else? Can you tell me what's going on there?
0: So the conversations are ongoing. You know, we, we did focus Predominantly this summer on on uh, racial issues, raising the profile of, of Black people in the community, um, and talking about Black issues. This fall, where we're focusing on Indigenous peoples, and their plight in America and and within the history of Arlington, um, and and we're bringing that across. And, and we're continuing this. We're we're moving forward with additional programming. I mean, this is this is what we're here for is is educating the community, even just uh, around the signs the we've started replacing any signs that are taken. We're not letting people push back on this. If, if a sign is taken, the HRC is replacing them, and not just once but twice. So if you lose a sign, if it's destroyed, we'll give you two. And you can keep one yourself and add and give one to a neighbor or a friend. We're just trying to help this visibility grow. Um, and that's what we consider our mission at this point in time, is, is raising the visibility on these issues, even in a community like Arlington. hmm Andrea, in your
1: town, you've set up an anti-racism league on Facebook. How does that work? What, what's happening with that?
3: So, yes, that started on Facebook, actually, by um, by another, another Linfield resident. And we are now creating a human uh, rights commission as well. So that's going to not only be online, we're taking that offline to a real, real government uh, organization here. So. Really excited about that.
1: Have you attracted people who initially weren't involved? Uh, you know, what's what's been the response?
3: Oh, my goodness. Um, when we started this Facebook group, there was maybe 40, 40 members. And now we're up into the, the 300s at the moment. Yes, people people from both sides of the, you know, political divide, should I say, coming together, realizing this Shouldn't be a political issue, but so many people that would um, that have come that have come forward to to want to help to want to make a change. Even our own our school department, these actions that have happened this past summer at my house and others has has sparked a lot of change in our school system. Their um, school improvement plan included a lot of training, not only for the students, but for the teachers as well. Wow, that's good.
1: Emma, now you've spoken about uh, having an, uh, a long-term relationship with civil rights activity. You and your family before, so a lot of this is not a surprise to you. Though even it's a little shocking in your neighborhood where you were, not not hoping that this would happen. So I wonder what you can say up to most people who are just beginning this work and and need to understand that it's it's a long, long-term plan sure. it's a it's a long game it is. You know it's
4: um yeah i mean if, if your activism has just started it's hard work and you can't stop because you know the end is it really is an in sight and i think with social media platforms this is where things can really get more challenging and difficult but these conversations aren't easy and i think that again, a lot in our community and, um, you know, in the generational gap and stuff like that. It's easy to get in arguments on Facebook, but um, educating people and having tough conversations with family members about the Black Lives Matter movement and about activism and um, basic human rights are really important conversations that you need to have. And it's not just like, oh, I'm going to unfriend my Uncle Billy because he doesn't gets it, get it. It's about picking up the phone and calling somebody and educating them. Um, and something I've been really active about this year more than I have, I feel like, in previous years, is white people taking over the power of educating other white people because It's been up to Black and Brown people for so long to educate white people on how they feel about systematic racism and about how certain phrases in certain language makes them feel and why it's insulting. And now that white people understand why it's insulting and what systematic racism is and how we can help in and change that, then we need to be the people doing the education and not... Not leaning on our black and brown communities to educate white people on racism and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So I, I feel like the the two, 2020 active, activism route is is different than it has been in previous years and previous generations, where really education and there's so it's there's so many ways that you can educate yourself. Um, education is is the biggest thing that white people can do right now for other white people who just don't understand it.
1: And Andrea, what would you say to folks who are, you know, listening to this conversation and trying to figure out, you know, where they may be in the space? Um I'll lead into asking you to answer that question by saying at the 1st of October, that's this month, a Massachusetts police officer threatened two teenage boys in her home. Um, who supported Black Lives Matter? One of them was a black young man. One was Latino. They were there for a sleepover with her son, and um, it was a pretty awful scene. That's in Milton that that happened. She has she has said she is uh, not apologizing. The officer is white. remains remains on active duty pending the outcome of investigation, and says she is not apologizing.
3: I think as white people, we need to. I mean, we're we're the ones that have caused the problem. <laughs> we're the ones that have caused the problem. Why why are we leaving it up to the black people, black brown people, to be the ones to fix the problem? We we caused it, and um, there there's there won't be any end in sight as far as I as far as I'm alive, as far as my children are alive. But I. <laughs> I I can't see, maybe not with a sign, but I, I just want to have the conversation. I will never push someone away for not understanding. If you want to talk to me, I will absolutely have the conversation. All
1: right. Well, I think we have to leave it there. I thank all of you for joining me today um, and sharing your very personal stories um, in this moment.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us. Emma Hollander is a managing partner of Trina's Starlight Lounge in Somerville. Andrea Markarian Jones is a world language teacher at Malden Public Schools. And Melanie Brown is a software developer and member of the Arlington Human Rights Commission. Coming up, he's the rough-riding war hero, the politically popular politician, and the enthusiastic wildlife hunter. But President Teddy Roosevelt's legacy also includes his passionate love of wilderness lands. That's the story author David Gesner highlights in his new book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. ¶¶
4: Um... Uh-huh.
1: Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call lanyap That's Creole for something extra. For the last eight months, Americans have found solace from the limitations of COVID-19 in the outdoors. Many of them enjoying a new appreciation for the country's variety of national parks and monuments. But it's fair to say that most may not know they owe a great debt to the nature-loving American president Theodore Teddy Roosevelt or that his life's work to preserve public lands is the foundation of today's environmental movement. Author David Gessner details this legacy in his book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Gessner is a professor and department chair at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He's written 11 books, including the New York Times bestselling All the While That Remains and My Green Manifesto Down the Charles River in Pursuit of a New Environmentalism. And author David Gessner joins me now from Wilmington, North Carolina. Hello. How are you?
2: Hey, Callie. Great to talk to you again. It's been a, a little while and it's good to be back in Theoretical Boston.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, let's begin this way with the title of the book, Leave It As It Is. It turns out it comes from a very famous statement, speech that Teddy Roosevelt made. Please explain uh, its history.
2: I call it the environmental equivalent of the Gettysburg Address. It's Roosevelt standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon during a uh, massive campaign tour, the first whistle stop um, tour ever by a sitting president. And he's standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, which he's never seen until that morning. He'd gone up and snuck a peek that morning and seen the great purple bruise of the canyon. And he came back and he delivered this speech where he basically said, leave it as it is. Uh, Do nothing to mar it. Don't build hotels on it. Don't um, build houses. Uh, Keep it for your children's children. Which has become kind of an environmental cliche, but it wasn't at the moment. It was a way of connecting the land to our future, to our children. And I found it a very handy phrase in other ways too. Um, They tried to change the title of my book at one point, the publishers, and I wrote a very nice letter, but it ended with the emphatic, leave it as it is. (laughs) I've also found it works for the pandemic. We should have left bats as they were. You know, people forget that the pandemic is kind of an environmental crisis among other things us, our kind of insatiable curiosity, and our refusal to leave it as it is. Hmm. So your book
1: is a way, as I've said, to bring us back to what Teddy Roosevelt meant and what he thought about the wilderness and the preservation of of public lands. but it also is another thing and that is at what you describe as a biographical adventure in which you take part and took your nephew along with you so that um, it's actually you're revisiting, reliving some of the of what Teddy Roosevelt left behind through your eyes and through your nephew's eyes. I wonder if you'd read from page 11, where you're describing the beginning of the trip
2: sure i'd love to do that we had been on the road for 10 days having worked our way up the east coast from north carolina to washington dc then heading to boston before making the turn westward at last we had crossed the mississippi and encountered large animals in what were at least semi-wild places which meant that for both of us the trip had really begun for my 21 year old nephew It was only the second time that he had crossed America's Great Dividing River, and the first when his destination was the ocean on the other coast. Noah is a quiet kid, so quiet sometimes I don't know if he was appreciating what we were seeing or experiencing. But after our trip, he would send me a letter that let me know he had seen and felt it all. The drive through the middle of the U.S. is a tough pill to swallow. To get to the West, he would write. It is miles and miles of plains, farms, and the occasional creek or river. Then, after driving in fairly flat, grassy plains forever, you reach the outskirts of badlands, and you just see the earth drop off. After hours of driving with boring views, the badlands hit you with an insane array of colors, landscape out of a fairy tale, and bison as common as people. The trip was my graduation present to him an attempt to offer up some of what I'd experienced when I headed west right after college. It was also a present to myself, an attempt to reconnect with an old hero of mine, one who had inspired me in the past and I hoped wasn't done inspiring. Like that hero, I was an Easterner who believed deep down that some of the best years of his life had been in the west and that the region, like the buffalo on my car, had left its indelible mark.
1: That's my guest, David Gessner. He's the author of Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So as you travel on both a personal adventure, a biographical one as you describe it, and revisit the places that inspired you and now seem to have inspired your nephew, you also let us know in the book, and I think I'm not sure I knew how much Teddy Roosevelt did to preserve these lands. Just give us a sample of the work that he did as president to set aside public lands all across the country.
2: Well, he worked with Congress on national parks, of course, and he had a deep love of, you know, partly through hunting, but partly through his work as a naturalist, of wild places. So he was always pushing the limits. You know, once when Congress tried to shut him down, he did the midnight, um, you know, with Gifford Pinchot, his Forest Service director. They saved millions of acres, and then they let Congress put their edict through that stopped the saving. So he stuck it in under the wire. Um, most famously, uh, in 1906, the Antiquities Act was created by Congress. And in that document, it used the word discretion of the president, the phrase discretion of the president, which are two words that with that president shouldn't really go together because as soon as Roosevelt got his hands on the Antiquities Act, which is how one creates national monuments, he went to work with his usual kind of almost crazed gusto. Um, just as an aside, he was a huge coffee drinker and he drank of it out of this gallon cup and he'd start drinking in the morning. He'd drink until, as his biographers say, he energetically went to bed at night and he invented the phrase good to the last drop that Maxwell House used. So he brought that same energy and passion to saving land. And as you said, he saved 230 million acres of public land by the end and wanted to save more. And he did it in parks, he did it um, national monuments, he did bird preserves, he, um, he had a passion for, for land. And I think he gave us a rough draft that we can use now for how we can continue to save land and make it kind of the Noah's Ark for our future and for our children.
1: And yet, as you uh, point out, he's kind of complicated because you began describing um, his efforts to save that land by saying he knew it because he was a hunter. So that seems in Congress in some way um, to leaving it as it is and leaving those animals as they are. And for that matter, leaving the people that lived on the land originally as they are. Um, Talk about that, if you will. Yeah, you
2: know, um, I would say to the short version, his attitude toward Native Americans was unforgivable. And one thing I try to do kind of differently than most biographers, because I consider myself, as you said, a biographical adventurer, not a biographer, is I just let it sit there. You know, I call him out on it. I say, if we're going to give him, if we're going to praise him for being prescient, for seeing the future in terms of environmentalism, we have to criticize him more. he was actually not just of his times, but behind his time, still a believer in manifest destiny. So I think we have to, we have to call him on it. Like for instance, this summer I wrote an op-ed supporting the natural American museum of natural history, taking down the Roosevelt statue, but to compensate, they also named, renamed their hall of biodiversity the, after Theodore Roosevelt. So there you get kind of, kind of the messiness, the hypocrisy of the man. For the cancel culture, he's actually kind of a perfect example of someone who did a lot, a lot of good, whose platform by the end would have made Bernie blush, it was so left, um, who evolved and who read a book a night and, and, you know, let ideas guide him, but at the same time held to old prejudices and definitely was, as his favorite word, a bully in the Trumpian fashion at times. Um, Mm -hmm. So we've got this messy character. But what I come back to is when he's 14 and he starts to study birds and his childhood ambition isn't to be a statesman or a soldier, it's to be a working naturalist like his hero, Charles Darwin. And birds open his eyes. Literally, he's just gotten his first pair of good glasses so he can see the world better. But at the same moment, he gets a gun. And so like Audubon, he studies birds in part by shooting them. But he also writes about them, and he ultimately writes forty seven books. So this is this kind of burgeoning curiosity that um, you know this Renaissance person who does you know is writing things, is studying birds, is saving land, is a politician, and, as I say, has some pretty ugly prejudices which we have to confront. but I think we have to confront them. you know I, I wrote a line in, that didn't make it into the book that said. We don't criticize people for not talking about gravity before Newton. You know, we do, to some degree, have to put him in the context of his time. But we also, we don't want to, you know, we want to call him out where we should and praise him where we should.
1: So one of the uh, strong uh, through lines uh, in your book is tying Teddy Roosevelt's legacy, his life's work in preserving these lands, other efforts by many other people to preserve these lands, bringing us to today where now the environment seems to some degree to be a partisan issue. Though I have to say that uh, when we talk about climate change across the board, political ideologies and generational most Americans are like, yeah, we got a problem. We need to do something about it. Still, as you say in your book, the words conservative and conservation law have been formally divorced. So what do you mean by that? And connect the dots for people about why the preservation of this land is so fundamental to the environment.
2: Public land grew with our country. It was there at the beginning. Um, And as states were admitted, Public land was part of the agreement. After the Civil War, when obviously we were at our most raw and hurting as a country, healing occurred in part because both sides, then Republicans, then Democrats, or conservatives and liberals, were behind the idea of American public lands. So historically, it's been a common ground. It's been a place where it's not a left or right issue. And I think, you know, I, I get out to do these books, you know. I went down to the Gulf during the BP oil spill. I go mm-hmm. west and do these books. I think when you break out of the MSNBC versus Fox world of television, you actually still see a lot of overlap and commonality. And as you said, when it comes to climate, people aren't stupid. I live in the Hurricane Bullseye of of you know Southeast North Carolina. My friends live out west and fires are burning. We know how vital it is to have large swaths of land. And Wallace Stegner called our national parks America's best idea. I question that a little in this book because partly we took a lot of that land from indigenous people, but I still believe it can be our best idea because what it does is it allows other species to continue to evolve. It allows migration and it saves it for us too. We need that breathing space as a nation, which, believe it or not, is a quote from Richard Nixon, of all people, which shows that both sides, until very recently, you know, I would say James Watt and Reagan were part of the big turn toward making it just a conservative versus liberal issue. And it's unfortunate because it's really something we all need.
1: And I just want to underscore that Richard Nixon, as you point out in your book, presided over the largest and perhaps most important passage of environmental laws in the country's history. That included the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Air Act. I mean, that's pretty monumental and fundamental at this point in all of our lives.
2: And the EPA Uh, and, you know, all the Rachel Carson thinking came to fruition in law during Nixon's time.
1: Yes. So that should be remembered. So now we have a situation because there is a partisan divide around some of the issues under the umbrella of the environment and environmental causes. And um, the Trump administration has had many people in charge, particularly the ones that are connected with the preservation of the public lands, who are, seem to be moving in a direction to reduce the footprint of those public lands and allow it to be opened up for corporate use. And that's, you know, a a dire situation for many, many people. And I did not know all the details of the example that you give that I'd like you to talk about now, which is the Bears Ears reduction and how all of the pieces that we're talking about now, the partisanship, um, the, the need for understanding about the connections with climate change, all of that has come together in this one piece and why it's emblematic of where we are now.
2: Thanks, that's a great way to tie a lot of things together, as you said. Um, So when I moved to Colorado, I actually moved from Worcester when I was 30. I just had testicular cancer. And it was like something out of a John Denver song. I mean, I was reborn, not in my 27th year, but in my 30th year out there. And I spent a lot of time in Southeast Utah during those, those years. And when Bears Ears was being made a national monument, I was asked to contribute. To a book that was distributed to Congress. So when Obama declared Bears Ears in December of 2016 as he's leaving office, I really felt a personal empowerment and elation. And tell us where it is again. Tell us where Bears Ears again. It's in Southeast Utah. And as I say to everybody, if you've only seen Utah on a Star Trek movie, you've got to get out there because it's, it's a whole other world. Um, but even though this meant a lot to me, this declaration, it meant so much more to the native people of that landscape. Uh, the Hopi, the Navajo, the Ute, the Ute Mountain Ute, and the Zuni, who for five years had been studying this landscape uh, that's with these two prominent buttes, the Bears' Ears, um, had been studying this landscape, which had been an ancient meeting ground of their people and had this imprint of native people forever. And they'd been studying the Antiquities Act, and I lucked out when I first went out to interview people, I to run into Regina Lopez Whiteskunk, who was a wonderful uh, Ute Mountain Ute tribal um, member of the Bears Ears Commission. And she said, we're not here to relive historical trauma. We're not here to say we want our land back. We're here to use an old tool of the United States government, one that Teddy Roosevelt used in an all new way, which is to save land for native people, land that'll be part of ceremony, land where plants can be gathered, a new vision, a more inclusive vision of nature. So this thrilled me because I thought, well, Teddy gave us the rough draft and here's the new way. So of course I was ecstatic when Obama declared it. 10 months later, Ryan Zinke, then, uh, then Secretary of the Interior, standing in front of a picture of Teddy Roosevelt in the White House, on what would have been Roosevelt's 159th birthday, October 27th, undeclared 85% of Bears Ears. And he did so saying, I'm a Roosevelt Republican. that moment is when I decided to write the book. I had had many friends who were doing kind of knee jerk articles about what Trump had done the next day, the day before. And I said, I'm gonna do a long take on, on what I care most about, the land and nature And so I went out and that's what led to the trip with my nephew Noah. And I saw this great ideal and I saw us doing what we'd historically done to native people, giving land and taking it away. And of course we were doing it and suddenly granting oil leases on it and handing it over to industry. So it was the perfect emblem for me of what we were doing wrong with that land. Uh, Also, it's a connective piece, which we can get into later. If, you know, it's north of the Grand Canyon, and it's a—it's this wild place where you can, you know, if you drive your car through, you're lucky if you're going to see another car for, for hours. It's just, it, you wouldn't believe such a place exists in the continental United States.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with David Gesner, the author of Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. It's his latest book and our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club.
2: Callie, I just wanted to add a P.S. that, um, of course, there were lawsuits. Native tribes brought lawsuits, environmental groups. And right now, in the District of Columbia, in a courthouse, the fate, they've got to the essential question, which is, can a president, because remember, a president declares national monuments through the Antiquities Act, can a president undo something that a previous president has done? And it's happened once before, but it was it was a long time, time ago and it didn't go to court. It was with Wilson, Woodrow Wilson. But if it were decided that that could be done in court, then any land saved could be unsaved. So this is the essential question. It's not getting a lot of press. But if this went to the Supreme Court, for instance, this would change, you know, land that had been saved for for 114 years. Hmm. Wow. That's very
1: important in this discussion. and I, I don't think I, I had a clear understanding of that before I read your book. Um, one of the things you do in this book uh, that you have not done as much in other books is really sort of stake out a personal response and a call to action. So you write that most of us can no longer afford to be skeptical. Something else is coming and It is coming to our front doors, not the scary weather, but the scary climate. Why did you decide to take a stand based on and really came out of this biographical adventure and revisiting these sites and and, and rethinking about what Teddy Roosevelt had done?
2: really did. A lot of times I, I have a personal aspect to books. They're not, you know, books in the sense of being just about something. In fact, I've, I think we've talked about this before, but I had a professor in college, uh, Walter Jackson Bate, great biographer, and he talked about what you can put to use from biography, what you can kind of steal for your own life. And that's always been very exciting to me. And two things that were going on in my life. One, I was calling myself out. I was saying, look, you've written about how great nature is. You've done all this stuff, but it's time to put up or shut up a little bit. And it's time to become more of an activist. And the way I get things done in my life is I write a book about them. So I wrote a book about Teddy Roosevelt in part to spur myself on. The other thing that's happened is my daughter is 17 and is part of the sunrise movement that Bill McKibben started. And listening to her and listening to my college students and my grad students, I came to realize that the climate crisis is not some theoretical thing the way it is for some old people like me. Um, It's real and vital. It's anxiety provoking. It's right in their face. And it's the most important issue for them. It's funny to hear the debates where it barely gets mentioned. So it was kind of saying to me, it's time to kind of come out more, uh, politically and as an activist. Now, I hope I don't, I mean, I do propose in the book that uh, I'd like to see a fight between Roosevelt and Trump, um, but I hope it's not, you know, one of the reasons for writing about Roosevelt is trying to make a bigger umbrella because both conservatives and liberals like him, but I guess my politics, um, environmentally at least, come out pretty strongly in the book.
1: So, what do you want readers to take away from this book? It's this a question I'd like to ask all of my authors, because You have quite a lot going on. I should say to all my listeners, it's extremely well-written. So it has a novel approach to many of these issues that some of us may not have stopped to consider and others that we know about, but really put in the context, um, and even better for me, in the context of, of the legacy of this American president. But that's what I took from it. So I'm interested, you as the writer, what you'd
2: like other people to come away with primarily. Well, first, I want to say thank you. Um, You know, because of the title and what it's about, supposedly, it gets reviewed by historians and they never mention the writing. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) look, I'm a writer. I'm I'm not a biographer or a historian. I'm a writer. Mention the writing, please. So thanks for doing that. And for me, you know, what you said is a large part of it. But there's another kind of building block to the book, which is place matters falling in love, it kind of goes back to when we talked about my Green Manifesto. Place matters, and through attachment and love of a place, we start to fight for places. And for instance, going to the Badlands myself and spending time looking at the little Missouri and being in that landscape, I felt I knew Roosevelt better through the place that he loved and knew. And I think if we can kind of accept that as a priority in our lives, and I think you're right about the pandemic, I think people have begun to explore their backyards and think about place more, then we can start to realize how vital it is to fight for. And then of course you take that small scale and you expand it to this country. We do, we've done a lot of things wrong historically and we're rightly calling ourselves about them, but the land is one of the best things we've done and we can do it even better now. So it is kind of a rallying cry, the, the book. And in more recent books, I've tried to work on several different threads. So, of course, this has the road trip aspect. It has the biography aspect. But it also is this you know, kind of hopefully a bit of a clarion call environmentally. And the fourth thing that the historians never mention, I think in places it's a little funny, too. <laughs> it is, I have to say.
1: <laughs> Thank you uh, so much for joining me, David Gessner. Thank you
2: so much. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me, Billy, and I hope I can come back again soon.
1: i look forward to it. David Gessner is the author of Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. It's his 11th book and our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at GBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.